Welcome to Ask a Jew, where a secular, sinful Israeli speaks to her holy religious friend. I'm Yael, here with Chayalea. We once again have a man here with us. Which, <laughs> Chayalea, are you, are you allowed to talk to men? I not this one. I'm not, not related he- to him. We're just, we're talking through a screen so he but can't see me. Rob Henderson, you're, you're Jewish, right? <laughs> or, or is that a booking uh, mistake? No, I did a 23 in me actually last year, and I'm 0.6% Sephardic. So oh, does that count? Yeah, you're we'll in. Take okay. it. We'll take Good. it. We'll take it. I just learned my father. So this is like I just took this 23andMe genetic ancestry test. I learned my fa- I'm half Hispanic on my father's side. Ancestry in Spain. Uh, and apparently there's like Latinx, a Latinx, by the way. Latinx. <laughs> sorry, Latin, <laughs> Latin with the yeah. E at the end. Yeah. And I guess there's like a pretty, I don't know, prominent group of Sephardic Jews or used to yeah. be or something around in and around Spain. And so yeah. that mm-hmm. may have been where that 0.6% came from. So it's it's nice to be a member of the tribe. Oh yeah, my God, well, welcome. It's welcome. An easy breezy. We're an easy, yeah, it's easy breezy to be it. Jewish. Yeah. <laughs> you're going to love we, it. No oppression. Yeah. We are the oppressors. <laughs> it's great. It's so easy. Nice, yeah, nice to be on the other side of that. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm. But, um, for sure. Um, Rob, the reason we, we have you on, first of all, I've been following your, your work for, <clears throat> for quite a while and your writing, um, but you just published your first memoir. Right? I mm-hmm. mean, do people publish more than yeah, one how memoir? Many memoirs can you have? I don't know. I Maybe mean, if they like... keep paying me, I'll write as many as they want. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I'm I feel Jewish, like, I feel remember? Like you covered, yeah, <laughs> you, you covered like years one to 30 something. So maybe for yeah. the next 30 years. But the memoir is called <laughs> Troubled A Memoir of Foster Care, Family, and Social Class. And I actually just finished reading it. Um, our uh, producer, Gabby, who is wonderful, and we should give her a shout out because her mother listens. Um, <laughs> but. I was listening, we listened to a few interviews with you and I, I wondered if I should read the book and Gabby said, no, you should absolutely read it because hmm. it's just it's interesting. It's really good. Um, so it's really good. Now you're probably so, if, if I'll ask you to like give us your, your story real quick, like how tired are you of doing this from one to 10? Uh I'm not tired, you know, okay. I don't know, two and a half. So, is, 10 is a lot. We're going to give you an much. option to no. do it like in a pirate accent <laughs> or to do it like yeah. without backwards. vowels. Yeah, yeah. Backwards. <laughs> mm. backwards. I mean, no, I can, you know, I, you know, just briefly and we can, you know, if you want to pause or we can dive into any of these, you know, kind of topics or stories, but I was born into poverty in Los Angeles. Um, my mother came to the U.S. from Seoul, uh, South Korea. She was a young woman. was a student, started doing a lot of drugs, started partying. At some point became pregnant with me. Um, became homeless for a time. We lived in a car. Eventually we settled in this slum apartment out in L.A. And she was just very neglectful. Um, you know, now I have this thick document full of reports and files and so on from social workers and forensic psychologists and people involved in my case when I was in the foster system in LA, but my mother would have people sort of in and out of the apartment at all hours of the day and night, trading favors for drugs, Hmm. not really, you know, paying attention or providing care for me. Um, eventually some neighbors called the police and I was placed into the foster care system when I was three and spent the next five years or so in and out of seven different homes all around LA. Eventually, I was adopted by this 
in a blue collar working class family, we settled into this dusty kind of rundown town in Northern California called Red Bluff. And which, you know, by the way, I, I looked was, up uh, I looked up mm-hmm. Red Bluff today, and mm-hmm. I looked at the notable people, <laughs> and the only person I could recognize at notable <laughs> people was um, Jim Hanks, who is Tom Hanks's brother. <laughs> yeah, he has a connection there, Tom Hanks. I think, yeah, yeah. He, um, that's like our claim to fame. Like people lo- in Red Bluff <laughs> love talking about how Tom Hanks has family that live there. That's so um, funny. <laughs> but otherwise, it's you know, Red Bluff is situated in a very poor, like one of the poorest counties in the state. You know, very high crime. You know, it was one of the towns that got wrecked by the opioid crisis. It's just mm-hmm. a really kind of destitute area. Um, and I was adopted in the late 90s, and I kind of witnessed the, you know, the I got like a front row seat to the ongoing deterioration of families in kind of working class and lower middle class areas across the U.S. Um, you know, people, it's, it, Red Bluff is in California, but, you know, it's it's very different than the California most people think about. I mean, it, it looks and sort of reflects to some extent. I mean, there's a large Hispanic population there too, but it's a very sort of working class area, uh, rural I mean, in some ways, it, it wouldn't be... I mean, it looks like as provincial and, uh, you know, like a backwater that you would see, I guess, in like the Midwest or something like that. Right. It's just a very kind of forgotten part of the country. And then, yeah, I just uh, was a really bad student, barely graduated high school, kind of, you know, unfocused. There was a lot of drama and divorce and separations and financial catastrophes all throughout my childhood and adolescence. Um, enlisted in the Air Force, then went to Yale in the GI Bill, and kind of turned my life around from there. But it, you know, I, the, the the book, the first half of the book, especially, just yeah. zooms in on what life looks like in these parts of the country now for teenagers and kids who aren't headed off to college, and what their lives look like, and what the families look like in these areas, mm. and so. Yeah, most of that's the, kids uh, the story you, in a nutshell. Yeah, most of the kids you grew up with, it seems, um, were your friends. You know, mm. n- not necessarily bad kids, but you know, kids that all came like like you from um, sort of what what we'd call broken homes. I don't know if people use that that term anymore, or you know, if some found themselves, um, you know, uh, in in prison, or some found themselves like in, in all kinds of like violent situation. Uh, yeah, and then. You got to the Air Force, and uh, one of the, one of the things that I, I was really struck by that you said that when you joined the Air Force, you you felt that you had uh, uh, you had gained some sort of freedom in that structure. Or, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, I mean, I ha- it was it was the good kind of freedom. I mean, I had freedom before mm-hmm. that with just a absence of oversight, and you know, as a teenager and in high school with my friends, we'd get into trouble. We would vandalize buildings and drink and drive and do all the things that teenage boys will do when there's no, you know, there are no attentive adults around and none of us had our dads around. And it was, um, you know, the the term broken homes is interesting. I mean, I think part of the, I mean, I I know that like it's, I guess, politically incorrect to say it, but I think another reason why people don't say it anymore is because it's become so normal. Like it almost seems Mm. weird to say broken home when like literally every home is broken. And so it feels (laughs) like, you know, like it's funny. I was listening to this, podcast recently, this guy, he was a physics professor, but he was talking about how when he was growing up in the 1970s, 
you know, there would be like one or two kids in the classroom that came from divorced parents. And the teachers and the adults around would be like, oh, that kid comes from a broken home. They would like pay extra close attention to the kid, make sure he got the help he needed. Like, oh, you know, Billy's parents are divorced. So let's, you know, look out for him. Um, And now if you go to these, you know, Red Bluff and other parts of the country, it's like literally every kid in that class has parents who are unmarried or divorced or from, you know, kind of alternate family arrangements raised Mm -hmm. by a grandmother or an aunt or someone else because the parents are unavailable. Uh, And so, yeah, for me, the the military was, uh, you know, it was a good avenue for me to sort of... Which is interesting you're saying... It's interesting you're saying that because I think, you know, as a religious person, um, and I'm sure all religious, doesn't matter what religion you come from, but I know in particular in Judaism, when you say you're like an observant Jew, an Orthodox Jew, it means that you're following a lot of rules. There's a lot of structure to your life from what you eat to what you wear to, you know, what sort of businesses you're in. I mean, everything is structured. And we're always taught that like that gives you a lot of freedom like sort of eliminating a lot of choices and having boundaries and structure and framework for life. And it's kind of like what you're saying about when you're a teenager, not having any of that and just having like what we would like as a teenager, I wanted to be free, right? I was like, there are too many rules, you know, cause I, I couldn't do what I wanted. I was so like stifled in a way by my <laughs> religious family and my religious practices. But I was always being told, no, 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 you don't understand. You have so much freedom because you live in this structure. Mm. And it's only now as an adult that I kind of understand it more and appreciate that more. And, you know, I had this image that anybody who had no rules and didn't have parents on top of them were living like this amazing life. Like I was jealous of what you're describing in a way, you know, of being a teenager. Right. And, yeah. um, but now I now I understand. I mean, as a parent and as an adult, yeah. I see how wrong I was. <laughs> yeah, I understand. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, when you have when you have the discipline and habits and predictability built into the routine. You don't. <clears throat> it frees you up to make. You know, you sort of outsource that cognitive burden of you know what am I going to do tomorrow? What am I going to do next right. week? What are my plans for the future? Once those are built in you know, suddenly you have mental space available to think about right. other things and consider other things. And <clears throat> and this was, you know, I wasn't having these thoughts consciously as a teenager. It was just, um, you know, yeah. when, when you, we were just acting on our impulses and re- behaving recklessly and not really thinking that much about the future. But once I was in the military and the structures were in place, and it sounds similar kind of to what you're describing with religious traditions and... yeah edicts and guidelines and so forth that to some extent those chapters of the book are a defense of the importance of boundaries and limitations and constraints especially for young people and especially for young people who are in like mired in squalor and dysfunction and chaos that um, it becomes even more important to have habit and predictability and routine uh, for kids in those environments but the kids who need it the most are the least likely to have it right Um, right you know, it's one thing if you're, I mean, you can be a free range kid to do whatever, you know, free to do whatever you want and roam the streets. If you live in an upper middle class gated community and on every, you know, every house is inhabited by two married parents and families and, you know, it, it's very safe. Uh, you know, you can go without adult oversight to some extent uh, and you'll probably in all likelihood be okay. But if you're in a neighborhood where, you know, the homes are inhabited by single parents or 
parents who aren't really, you know, they're, they're, they're high on drugs or checked out right. or not really. Or drugs are rampant present. all over. Yeah. Yeah. Then, and you can, yeah, you can get access to indulge your most, you know, base appetites. Then suddenly, yeah, you just are presented with options to destroy your life, essentially. Yeah. And that's what happened with some of my friends who did end up going to prison or, uh, you know, got, I had one friend, his little brother was shot to death when he tried to join a gang. And right. those are very common kinds of outcomes for, especially boys uh, in these communities. Um, I mean, it's funny, like when I speak with people and like, I, I think people, one of the things that the book points out is that like the kind of deterioration of the family and the chaos and violence and drugs and all this stuff, I mean, it kind of hit people in order of their marginalization and vulnerability. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the deterioration of the family and all of the attending social ills kind of started with poor black families in the U.S. And then it kind of moved to poor white and Hispanic. And now it's not just poor, like Red Bluff, it was like working class, lower middle class. And so it's kind of creeping upward more and more where the family dysfunction, you know, it started at at the kind of the, the bottom of society where people are struggling the most. And now it's sort of drifting upward more and more to the point where, you know, as recently as 30, maybe 40 years ago, a place like Red Bluff, it would have been like a working class blue collar town, but people still would have been married. And, you know, there would have been some semblance of kind of respectability and, you know, those kinds of things. I mean, family structures and now it's like, you know, Anywhere outside of that sort of upper strata of society, that upper 20%, uh, they're all sort of at risk uh, to go in this direction. Right. <clears throat> Why do you think it's so hard for us in, our, in the culture today to talk about the importance of, you know, a two-parent family or, you know, structure for kids and not have, you know, trying to put your home together so that the kids can thrive? Like, it feels like it's almost politically incorrect to say it. And I feel like there it's <coughs> terrible. I mean, we should be telling them the truth about, you know, look at what you can give your kids, the advantages the kids get when they come from a family that's intact, but it's hard to say it. And so I'm just wondering if you have an idea of why. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a part of it. People don't want to feel judgmental. They don't want to feel like they're finger yeah. wagging. You know, they don't want to feel like they're <clears throat> condemning others' choices. But I just read this book, um, The Two-Parent Privilege by Melissa Carney. Mm-hmm. Really good book. One of the things she points out, and I think this is a useful kind of analogy to think about it, is you know, as a society, we valorize education. I talk about this in the book a little bit, this idea of, the, of education as the be-all and end-all. And we talk about the benefits of, you know, oh, if you get a college degree, you're going to earn this much more money a year and over the course of your life, and you just have so many more opportunities opened up to you. And so we're willing to say that having a college degree is better than not having one. But we don't necessarily jump to, oh, if you don't have a degree, we're judging you and condemning you and saying there's something wrong with you. But people do make that logical leap or mental leap when we talk about families, where if we say two-parent families are better... It's good to be, you know, it's better for them to be married. You know, statistically, on average, a kid's going to thrive in that kind of environment. But people make this mental leap to, well, why are you judging single moms? And why are you shaming people? And why are you this, that, and the other? And it's like, no one's doing that. I mean, I'm not. Mm -hmm. You know, you can say one ideal and way of life is better on average without saying others are bad. In the same way, you can say having a bachelor's degree on average is probably at least financially better 
but you're not saying people who don't have degrees, there's something wrong with them or we right. should stigmatize mm-hmm. them. Um, and I wish we, yeah. Uh, but I, I, I think that people need to be able to hold those ideas in mind and, and I think yeah. be willing to be more vocal about the importance of family. It's so true. Like I tell that to you, Elle, all the time. <laughs> what, Get married family? and have kids. <laughs> Do your job. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Do your job. We just want more Jews in the world. That's true. We're so, we have so few. It's true. Yeah. Um, um, yeah, go ahead, Yael. Do you have a question? No, I was going to ask you. So one of the things that you mentioned um, is that you had ice cream for the first time when you were 12. No, no, no. I was seven. I was no. seven when oh, I had ice cream. No, yeah. when you walked into the ice cream place and you saw like... Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Ice cream her for the Hebrew's first time. Hebrew is her first language. She probably didn't read it correctly. <laughs> <laughs> Did I? Was I reading somebody else's Hebrew translation? Book? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, I think you were you you were going in. Yeah, um, I was telling you what you what happened. Yeah, I'll you. tell you what happened. <laughs> you were twelve. Yeah, yeah. It was amazing. <laughs> just, just shut up and say you were twelve. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, you were twenty-four. You had never <laughs> seen ice cream. You're like, what What's is ice this cream? cold beverage that's also he, kind of oh, hard? You were, with your, you were with your mom, and you went into a very cold store, and you looked and you saw the, the different things there, and you asked if it was candy. Okay. And they gave you ice cream, and you're like, oh, this is what ice cream is. Uh, that's like 80, 70, 80%. I mean, <laughs> that's all I took so, from the book, by the way. That's all I remember. I don't, I don't know any. I stopped reading then because I was just so. Sad. Yeah, I've had enough. Yeah. Oh um, well, I was seven, and I was with my foster mom, mm-hmm. and that, yeah, that was the first time I had ice cream. Um, never had it in any of the foster homes, and yeah, I was perplexed by it. Uh, I mean, I'm. St- I mean, I'm still yeah. perplexed by ice cream. I mean, it's I, a little confusing it, as a substance, uh, yeah. but yeah, at age seven, it was uh, yeah the first time. I mean, there were there was just a lot of those weird moments as a kid where you know there's so much disorder and instability, and foster parents are often their attention is often spread very thin, or the people who become foster parents just you know they become yeah. calloused and yeah. they're not you know they they start to see the kids that they're having, it's sort of interchangeable and that they withhold, I think, something too. I mean, this is something else that I only recently recognized is that, of course, it's difficult for the kids. I mean, you know, and that's who, who we should be mostly focusing on. But I think for foster parents, there's a difficulty there too, where if you become too attached to any kid, that kid's going to go to another home or return to their family of origin. Mm-hmm, right. And so even if you do start to like really care about a kid and want the best for them and so on, and then suddenly you'll never see them again. And so I think a lot of foster parents, they do become a little bit cold and emotionally distant and maybe don't give kids things that kids would normally like, like ice cream. And so I didn't have that until the final home. And yeah, I just told that story as like, you know, this is kind of what the things, things are like that we now take, for kids. For yeah, granted, you know, yeah. I think things that... The, like little things that we we take for granted. The um, best ice cream is in um, the Holocaust Museum in Jerusalem. Have you heard of the Holocaust? Uh, no. Have you heard of it? Oh, okay. Yeah. This was this yeah. thing that happened, and so there's a museum in Jerusalem. Allegedly, allegedly, allegedly. We're not sure about the numbers, but it was yeah. So uh, the best ice cream is at when when you have you been to Israel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been. I oh. think I've been to that specific museum too, Yad but Vashem. I didn't have the ice cream. Did you that try the ice cream? Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. I've been. 
No, I didn't have the ice. I didn't know that they had ice cream. Okay, well, it's well. very unfortunate that on the tour yeah. they don't tell anybody because downstairs yeah. in the in the <laughs> like by the garbage station or whatever, there's a, an ice cream stand, and I think it's yeah. very important for people to go have ice cream there because it's very heavy day. It's very sad. I remember, yeah. but it's, it's a good way to hot. like and yeah, and it's just like a good way to end the visit oh, yeah. with like. You know, fuck you, Nazis. I'm eating an ice cream. You're gone. Do they have themed ice creams? Like, yeah. Like themed flavors? Yeah, you get like, if you want Auschwitz, like it's like chocolatey. <laughs> they have different... Oh my God. <laughs> <I'm> just kidding. <laughs> Poor yeah. Rob. He's I know. like, yeah. I wanna, I'd like to promote my book. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. Jewish people buy a lot of books. So yeah, our listeners will buy the book. And buy his book. Don't, you know, we always tell people when we have authors on, buy the book. Don't check it out from the library. Like... Yeah, don't you be know, cheap. Don't be cheapskate. Yeah. 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 I love Jews. I mean, I never met any. Like Red Bluff, I don't think I've ever met a single, you know. Well, I was going like to ask common, you about yeah. that. Because yeah. I, I, you know, like I know uh, I'm, I'm actually in LA right now. Uh, and yeah. Kyla is in um, Long Beach. And, okay. but I'm, I live in New York, but I just happen to be here. So I know, I think I know California a little bit. And I'm like, the places you're describing are like the least Jewish places <laughs> that you grew up in. Yeah. And I was like, yeah. I, w- I want to know when the first time you met like a Jewish person was. So the first time I met like a like a like a someone that I knew for sure was Jewish, and we talked was it about at the ice a little cream bit. Store? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the guy behind the counter. Yeah. Um, no, it was it was in the Air Force. Uh, it was oh. one of the 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 pilots. So most people don't know this, but like I was going to say, there four- are no Jews in the Air Force. What are you talking <laughs> yeah, about? Yeah. Well, well, okay. Well, there are also like not that many pilots. Funny. So only four percent of people in the Air Force are actually pilots, and the other ninety six percent are like support staff and people who work on like the airplanes, maintenance technicians, you know, radar oh. operators. Like, there's just all these other jobs. Yeah. But mm-hmm. this guy, this Jewish guy, was a pilot. He had a mm-hmm. uh, Kipa and yeah, um, really? was, was like, you know, he was, uh, you know, he, he had that sort of, you know, you know, he had that like, um, the pilot. swarthy yeah. kind of like, Wait, uh, what did he fly? Uh, uh, it was C-17s. These are like heavy, no. heavy cargo aircraft. No, no, I'm not um, interested. Just stuff. Yeah. Oh, just fighter but pilots I, for me. <laughs> he had that like, he was like the tall, dark and handsome. That's the, I was trying to think oh. of the phrase, like tall, dark yeah. and handsome mm-hmm. thing going. Um, and yeah, you know, he was telling me, I don't remember exactly what, what somehow it came up that he was Jewish and you know, I could tell with the, the kippah. And um, that was the first time I ever met a Jew. And then I got to Yale and, you know, I met a lot of them. <laughs> and uh, and everywhere. no, I think it's like, I don't know. I, I, I liked them. I mean, I, you know, they were, I, I noticed that the people who were, maybe we're getting a little ahead of whatever, but I, I, I noticed the people who were the most sort of opposed to the encroaching crazy political correctness or what people call wokeness now. Mm-hmm. There were a lot of Jewish people who were opposed to it. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I, I have a, a theory. Lot of and, yeah. yeah. I have a theory that Asians and Jews are mm. like, they have this kinship because we're both like white <laughs> now. We're, we're both like considered white. White, white adjacent. <laughs> white adjacent. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Well, they do put Although, us together oh, as successful minorities, yeah. you know. That's our model yeah. minorities. Model, model minorities. Model minorities. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I didn't, yeah. I mean, I, I'm half Hispanic too. So when I got those 23andMe results, what I tell people now is that I went to bed white adjacent and woke up as an underrepresented minority. <laughs> uh, and, you know, so, but but I think there's, there's something there. I mean, one of the, I mean, I get along. I, I mean, it seems like, at, at least for my experiences in higher ed, I get along with a lot of Jewish people. And I think like, I read this really interesting essay 
uh, last year by uh, Isaiah Berlin, mm -hmm. who was mm -hmm. a Russian Jewish philosopher. philosopher yeah. And he talks about, uh, the, the essay is something about, something like uh, the history of Jewish emancipation or something. Mm -hmm. I read this essay and he basically writes about that feeling of being a perpetual outsider. And it was sort of the uh, defense of the importance of Israel. I think he wrote it in the 1950s. Um, but I remember just reading, you know, the sort of his impressions and his views on, you know, wherever you go, you don't, you never feel like you fully fit in yeah. and mm -hmm. you can sort of pass a little bit for a while, but eventually people are going to pick up on the fact that you're not really a member of that club. And, Relatable. you know, coming yeah. from where I came from and the experiences that I had, like I, I connected with a lot of that. And, um, I don't know. I just feel like there's, you know, there's that kind of, I feel like I get a, a, a bit of what he was what he was describing there. I can understand it. So you, do you, you so you don't support Hamas. So is that what you're saying? Well, I mean, I didn't say that. No. I'm just, I'm just <laughs> <laughs> do you think the calling from the genocide of Jews on campus is? <laughs> well, it depends on the context. Yes, um, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Well, yeah. I mean, we're seeing it kind of come to play now. What what you're describing. Um, but I think, like, you know, I, I can relate to, uh, you know, coming into a school sort of from the outside and thinking you were normal up until then or just thinking that your ideas were mainstream. Um, mm. And then coming to kind of a very high class, uh, I don't know, like uh, environment and realizing that things like mm. I remember one time I told somebody at school, like we, we had um, we had a pinata, right? So somebody brought a pinata for, for an event and we couldn't figure out what to do with it, like how to put it together. <laughs> and there was a girl from Mexico, right? So I'm like, we should, ask. she was right there. I'm like, let's ask her. <laughs> and everybody's like, oh, how dare you? And I was like, <laughs> it's literally a Mexican like heritage thing. Like what if, if you know, and just things that. that I didn't realize as a foreign <laughs> student um, that weren't normal. Yeah, And then I you mean, come into these elite environments and get a re-education. Yeah, the extreme thin-skinnedness and the sensitivity and it's just, the whole thing is ridiculous. You know, I, and it's yeah. it's only gotten worse. I remember in 2015 when I arrived at Yale, it was like, you know, the line was something like, oh, these college kids, they'll grow out of it and mm -hmm. once they get yeah. into the workforce, this will blow over and they'll realize, you know, you can't get away with this stuff once you become an adult and whatever and, you know, I think uh, Turns out you Andrew, can. yeah, Andrew Sullivan has that line about how we all live on campus now. Yeah, and yeah, it's literally sure. everywhere. So yeah, yeah. well, that's what um, I wanted to ask you about um, mm. because I work on a college campus, and I would love for you to address the issue of resilience because a lot of my students, who I love dearly, they're like my own children, um, feel that they are traumatized and come from, you know, incredibly difficult situations. And if they would, and when they read their book, because when, when they read your book, which I'm going to encourage them to, I think they'll see how lucky they were actually as kids. But how do we talk about resilience with these kids? What can they do to change the way they view themselves in the world, how they behave, how they act, because somehow you managed to do it. So give us your secrets and tell us what to do. Um, hmm. One of the things I did when I was a kid was, and this was kind of on my own, was reading, actually reading biographies and memoirs of people who had had difficult mm -hmm. lives and who managed to rise above their circumstances. Um, 
but not not from a perspective of like you know oh society is against me and i'm trying to you know rise above the prejudice and the discrimination and the bigotry of this society but more so what can i do in the moment mm. despite these difficulties to improve my life circumstances so you know in the book i write about uh you know or yeah i i write about how i read um yeah memoirs from from people like uh I, I read Muhammad Ali's biography. I read um, Richard Wright. He wrote this this memoir called Black Boy. And he does write about the racism of his time, but he's also writing about his own experiences and his own struggles and his own difficulties to make it in the world. Um, I read Man's Search for Meaning. Mm. Um, and I think it's, yeah, it's important for young people to read those kinds of stories to realize, like, people have very, like, as difficult as you think your life is, there are people who right. endure far worse. <clears throat> and so that's one piece of it, is to just sort of remind people to be grateful. I mean, even when I was reading those stories as a kid, living in the foster homes and the kind of, you know, situations and circumstances that I was in, I would read those stories and these books and think to myself that I was lucky in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um and then the other thing is like to just actually do difficult things. I don't know what it, whether it's um, sports or um, you know completing difficult long-term tasks and seeing them through. I think that can help too to just sort of be aware of your own capabilities and your own efforts can pay off, and you don't feel that sense of helplessness. Um, the other thing is uh, volunteering as well. Oh, that's um, so if you're a teenager and you are in you know, fortunate family and circumstances to spend once a week tutoring kids from disadvantaged homes or at a soup kitchen for the homeless or literally just anything where you can see how other strata of yeah. society live, that can yeah, help too. That's, those are really good ideas. Mm-hmm. How did you? How do you think you didn't become... You know, you, you came into this new environment at Yale after, you know, uh, growing up in the foster care system and eventually, uh, you know, uh, being adopted but having a somewhat troubled um, teenage life and the Air Force. And you come into Yale and you see what people of a certain class are like, how they behave, what they think. How do you think you di- – because I could see a situation where somebody would easily see all that stuff and just see like, well, I'm going to be like them now. So you would adopt mm. all these luxury beliefs, as mm. you call them, and you would adopt all this kind of, you know, high class mm. naming your cat after <laughs> a, um, you know, famous philosopher or something like that. Um, why do you think you you didn't go that route and instead chose to sort of resist it and eventually write about it? Well, I think one reason was just because I was older. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I think that played some role was just... You know, coming from the environment I came from, having different life experiences, not being so detached from reality where survival could be a day-to-day struggle. And I could see, you know, I I would see sort of firsthand just, you know, like I would hear, I would hear strange ideas and then I would think about how those would be implemented and how that would affect the lives of ordinary people and just realize like, Oh, this is nonsense. (laughs) Um, And then in the military too, I would have, you know, I had those experiences as an adult and 
So by the time I got on campus, I was probably inoculated to some extent, both due to my personal experiences and just being more mature and older. Um, but yeah, I just um, I just couldn't take a lot of it seriously, you know. And I, I came in open minded. I was willing to sort of hear them out, but you know, at a certain point, I just became fed up with it all. I mean, even even the defenses I would hear, like, "Oh, these are just college kids," like even something like that, I would think, like, "Well, I was seventeen when I enlisted mm-hmm. in the Air Force." I was younger than all of these students. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, like these, like it just, like the, the, the vast gap between what, like how, how quickly you're expected to mature based on essentially how much money your parents have and like what social class you belong to. That if you're a 20 year old on a college campus, you're essentially thought of as not much more than a kid. But if you're a 20 year old, uh, in a working class community, you're, you know, you have to work, you have to pay bills, mm-hmm. or you join the military, like you're already an adult. Mm-hmm. And so I just didn't, you know, the excuses that were made, the ideas, and, you know, to some, I guess I sympathize to some extent because they're a product of their environment too, right, that if right. you <clears throat> grow up so far removed from everyday realities that it's natural to develop abstract and bizarre and newfangled ideas, but you know, one point I hope to make in the book is that if you're fortunate enough to be a member of that privileged segment of society, that you have an obligation to help those who are less yeah. fortunate than you and try to understand them. And, you know, if you do find yourself in a position where you can influence policy and culture and so on, that, you know, you you should do your homework and really think through what could be the downstream effects of what happens when you promote a certain view or fashionable movement of what could happen to people outside of your bubble. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, I, it's amazing how <clears throat> detached people are from, yeah. uh, you know, I, I once had um, a, um, a cop say to me, a black cop, um, that people, uh, we were talking about, you know, uh, the anti-police people and the defund the police. And he said, you know, those are people who never have to pay a price for being wrong. Mm-hmm. And you know, it, it kind of comes back to 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 your luxury beliefs of you know things that may may sound good in in theory, but you're not the people who have to deal with it when it goes when it goes south, right? And I look at it yeah. like now when I live in New York, and um, I, where do you, where do you live? By the way, you're in New York. I'm I'm in New York right now. I don't live here. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm just visiting. Okay. Uh, I. I'm based in Cambridge, England still, actually. I'm there on a visa, but I'm back and oh, forth right. between the U.S. and the U.K. Okay. all the time. Yeah. Um, but I would just, uh, you know, just f- finish my thought on that. So, the, so, you know, in New York, we have a, a steady kind of rise in crime. And a lot of the, dis- the, the districts that are the, one who's, the ones who are voting for the more progressive candidates are also the wealthier districts where people can afford, yeah. you know, to live in a doorman building or to afford to live, you know, in a neighborhood that's a lot safer. Um, so, I mean, it seems like very, very basic logic to me of, you know, why you, you shouldn't have these beliefs or you shouldn't have these ideas if you're not the people who are actually going to have to pay for them. Yeah. I mean, the people who have the most influence in society are the most sheltered from catastrophic consequences as a result. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I mean, there's, that's like a, you know, that's a serious issue and, you know, uh, yeah, I just I, I still think though that if you are in an influential position, that you just need to go out of your way to really think through, you know, the policies you're promoting. Yeah, even if there is no penalty for being wrong, just shame them. You know, like what else yeah, is there? Like, yeah. what, exactly. what choices do we have available? 
other we than try. to point out the, the hypocrisy and, 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 and stigmatize it. And I mean, yeah. you know, like, that's about, those are the only tools available. There's a lot of very <clears throat> left-wing people in Israel that are very, very left and very progressive. And none of them think that Hamas is like a freedom fighter decolonization movement because mm. <laughs> because they have to deal with it and they saw what right. happens, right? They and feel the consequences. It, yeah, it's, right. it's very funny to see people like refer to that that way. What's your take yeah. on mandatory national service? Because that's kind of a controversial <clears throat> idea, one that I struggle with also because I, some you know, some mornings I'm like, we need every 18-year-old in this country to sign up and do national service and get to know each other and be stationed all over this country, giving back. They'll feel more patriotic. They'll get to know other people. And then some days I'm like, oh, that's not, you know, I'm kind of too libertarian for such an idea. But I'm curious what you think about that. I feel like that I would mean, turn I, the entire military trance or something. <clears throat> and, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, the countries that, that require it have... I mean, these are countries that need it, right? Like Israel has mandatory service, mm. but that's because like it's literally in that precarious yeah. position. Uh, South Korea has it, but the same thing, they border, you know, a country with a crazy dictator. And so there's a, I, I don't know that you could, you could like create, like recreate the same sort of support and outcomes of national service with, in, in the absence of actual physical danger. Um, because it'll just feel, it'll feel unnecessary. I think like the attitude around it will be unserious. I just, yeah. you know, if like well, Canada went crazy be, and wanted, yeah. Well, it doesn't have to be military. I mean, we can have, <clears throat> oh, you know, you, that could be one option, right? Oh, but okay. if you're 18 right. and you have to select a service, whether it's working in a preschool in a different state or building bridges or I don't know, fix painting yeah. over, you know what I mean? If we had some kind of program where 18 to 20 year olds were like investing their time yeah. and energy into sort of giving back to the country, it might. I, I think there might be a chance that it could build a community in a way that mm. people are just not finding it today. Because if you live in Long Beach, you're not meeting somebody who grew mm. up in Oklahoma City or in, you know, Tallahassee, mm. Florida. And, you know, college does that, but it's also, you're all kind of in the same class most of the time. Yeah. And I don't know, I just, there's something about a national service that might help, I think. I don't know. I know a lot of people who did teach for America and somehow they come back like more obnoxious. <laughs> like, I don't know how they were before they did it, but I know some okay. nice people who did that. <laughs> I, I guess. I mean, yeah. Okay. So outside of like just any kind of service, spend a year or two. Um, you know, I guess in, in principle, I'm not opposed to it. Um, but I do, yeah, there, there has, like, I do think that's, it's sort of directionally right that we need to find a way to improve social cohesiveness and sort of battle against the ever encroaching sort of atomization of society and the fragmentation and the uh, kind of isolating uh, divergent paths of, of the different classes across America that, you know, if you're born into an upper middle class neighborhood, you can go your entire life without having a 20 minute conversation with someone right. without a bachelor's degree. Mm -hmm. um, and so to just have that um, experience, even, yeah, especially during the most formative years of our early adulthood, that, that could be beneficial, but I guess just in terms of practicality, <laughs> you know, that's, know. You know, the execution <laughs> would be the hard part. Yeah. I know. What's, uh, what's it like in Cambridge? <clears throat> um, I mean, it's really nice. It's quaint. It's um, beautiful. I mean, the university is, 
think it's like nine, eight or nine hundred years old. And just like walking through it is very, um, I don't know, uh, enlivens the spirit, I guess. Yeah. It's just really nice to be in a place <laughs> like that. Um, What's your PhD uh, thesis? Uh, it was in it was in psychology. Uh, it was in moral psychology, um, building on some of the work from Jonathan Haidt and others around yeah. moral emotions and those kinds of things. I mean, it's mm-hmm. funny. Like halfway through my PhD thesis, I kind of lost interest in it. Like once I realized <laughs> I wasn't going to have an academic career, um, you know, I started to focus more on writing the book and mm-hmm. writing my Substack and other, uh, you know, other outlets. And yeah, I, I was just, you know, after my experiences at Yale and then I witnessed what happened at Cambridge, um, there were multiple sort of very public cancellations. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the culture in the UK, I mean, it's not quite as crazy as the Ivy League, the uh, Oxbridge schools, but they're like, they're close, Oxford and Cambridge. Um, <laughs> you know, they haven't gone completely off the deep end, but they're like right on that they're edge. Close. And yeah, and people get fired for expressing the wrong opinion and so on all the time. So, yeah, sadly, uh, Americans are crazy or. (laughs) Yeah, they do. I mean, well, well, I mean, Americans are crazy. Uh, (laughs) um, Well, okay. What do you mean? Like, do they like, do they see like what's happening at like Harvard or Yale or something and think that that's, is that what you mean? Like, yeah. Oh, I, uh, I think like, Privately, professors, many of them and people on campus think it's a little bit wild, but there are also plenty of others who think like, you know, we need to be like that and be more strident. I think so much of it is Cambridge, I just saw, Mm -hmm. well, I just saw like there was a demonstration uh, right before I I left uh, to the US. I saw there was a big, like, I don't know, maybe a hundred people marching around in support of Palestine and Hamas and the whole river to the sea thing. That was in Cambridge, Cambridge, England. I mean, which is usually like a quaint university town. You don't see a lot of demonstrations. That's one thing. Like Americans love demonstrating. Uh, Brits yeah. usually don't do it, but for some reason, like they were doing it for this, and that was pretty like alarming. I thought actually that this was happening yeah. even there. So we spoke to uh, Winston Marshall a few weeks ago, and okay. he lives in London, and he was telling yeah, us some London some is... horror stories. Well, Hyla's husband also is yeah, my husband's English from London. Yeah, he has family okay. there, and. Uh, yeah. yeah, it's great. Seems, uh, it's doing wonderful. <laughs> yeah, London. Yeah, there were those like demonstrations around the embassy, and yeah, the UK is, um, you know, it's 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 alarming. What's like what's happened? Um, yeah, like for us, it was like kind of you know, I, I don't know. I think a lot of Jews after October seventh. Like Haile and I and a lot of us were kind of already thinking a lot about wokeness and how it excludes like, you know, Zionists or Israelis. And but after October 7th, it really kind of crystallized where, uh, you know, like I think where we should be like Jews should be a giant alarm bell for the United States. Like we are, mm. you know, like this is how how you get, you know, it's one thing to say like, you know, oh, theoretically, I don't think there's a difference between cultures. And, you know, theoretically, I think a a three-year-old can choose their own gender. It's another thing to take those exact same ideas and be like, well, you know, people who go and like rape and mutilate, mutilate children are, you know, they're just as justified as, you know, resistance in in any way. Yeah. So. Yeah. It's uh, like, yeah, it's it's horrifying. 
Like it's horrifying to see. And you know, like over the last few years, a lot of critics of wokeness and you know they they've said like, oh, maybe now finally the universities will come to their senses. Maybe now, maybe now. <laughs> no. <laughs> and finally, I think, like, slowly, right, with the uh, the ousting of the Harvard president and uh, the one at Penn, and we're slowly, I think, like, now it seems like actually people are recognizing that there is a serious issue. Uh, even mm-hmm. people who were sort of fence-sitters or people who would sort of tepidly defend what was happening. But, you know, at this point, it's just, it's very clear there's a serious issue at these universities yeah. and what they're willing to tolerate that they wouldn't for any other group, right? Like people pointed this out, that if you said it depends on the context for literally any other group, like, you know, you'd be fired (laughs) immediately. But for this case, you know, because, you know, under that sort of weird wokeness framework, Jews are on the oppressor side that you can say those things. And yeah. Yeah, My grandmother was very oppressed (laughs) in Auschwitz. That's true. (laughs) We we went to a friend of mine... We went just today. We went to have lunch at a vegan restaurant here in Long Beach, and we got there and we were like signed up for you know a table or whatever. There was a wait, and when I went back outside, I noticed two big posters on the front windows. You know, March for Palestine, stop the genocide, blah blah blah. The most ironic part of it is that inside there's a huge mural of Ruth Bader Ginsburg on the wall with like some quote from her. And Ruth Bader Ginsburg was definitely a Zionist Mm -hmm. and would have supported Israel. (laughs) And the fact that the people in that restaurant who all, and by the way, the waitresses were wearing like free Palestine stickers, the fact that they don't understand and like they have no concept of what they are supporting and what they're saying and what they're doing. So I went over to the um, host, whatever the person is in the front, and I said, please cancel my reservation. I'm not comfortable eating here with the Palestinian, you know, the pro-Palestine signs outside. And (laughs) by the way, Ruth, and I said, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who was Jewish, was a Zionist and would not, you know, whatever. And I just, I left. And I just thought to myself, what angers me the most, I don't care if they believe it, fine, whatever. What angers me is these people have no connection to what's going on there. They don't know anything. They don't understand any of the historical context. They don't understand who they're talking about, what they're talking about. If this was a Palestinian restaurant, I would understand it. I would I would understand, okay, fine, it's their family right. members. They're connected to the conflict. They care about the people in Gaza. I understand that. These people in that restaurant had no concept of what they were talking about. And I was looking at just plain stupidity and I have no yeah. patience for it anymore read yeah. a book, learn about yeah. it, find out what's going on. Sorry, but I had a vent yeah. about that right now. Life has become um, a lot easier for Chayla and I, in a certain extent, after October 7th, because we can like draw that that clear line. Yeah, I'm like at Trader Joe's in line. I'm like, do you support Hamas? The guy's like, what? I'm sorry, I don't, I don't know. I'm like, <laughs> the world is black and white. That's it. Um, so Rob, tell us about writing. I mean, obviously you, you were talking about reading and how reading helped you a lot. And, you know, you, you seem to be like a kid who loved to pick up books. Um, how the hell can you write so much? Um, hmm. well, I, I think like part of it is just the discipline. Uh, you know, just like an Air Force thing. I think it was like a lingering. Yeah. I mean, that was one of the things I picked up was (laughs) learning to do things, even if I didn't want to. And so, you know, I try to write something every day, if not every other day, mm-hmm. uh, even if I don't know what it's going to be, or if I don't feel like it to just sit down and get something down on, on the page. Um, 
And it is just that sort of step-by-step incremental process. That's how I wrote my book and my PhD thesis and everything else was just each day, a few hundred words. And at the end of a month, you'll have a chapter. At the end of a year, you'll have a book. And that's just kind of how these things mm-hmm. go. But um, yeah, it's very different. You know, I, I had... It's like the least relatable thing you've said all <laughs> <laughs> of the entire interview. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it's funny. Like, I speak with other writers and, I, and like these, I guess they... they um, they are the kind of writer that I think a lot of people think about where they're just like, uh, the, the muse strikes them and they can sit down and they just feel, you know, the words come to them. And I, I don't like those people. I'm jealous of them. <laughs> I wish that could happen for me. But for me, it's much more of a sort of mechanical process of just mm-hmm. sit down and painfully, slowly get something down and then ideas form and take shape. And then gradually it kind of comes together. But yeah, I've never been one of those lucky creative types where, you know, like, oh, I have an idea and then it strikes me and I can just sit down and the words oh, come and flow yeah, effortlessly out people. of me. Yeah. I don't yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's just, uh, you know, it's funny. Like when I was in grad school, I would write and then I would, I started this newsletter. Originally, I hosted it on MailChimp and I would just write like these kind of weekly newsletters, um, whatever's on my mind or interesting research or thoughts or topics around social class or personal experiences. And um, I didn't really expect it to take off the way that it did. Um, mm-hmm. And no, I'm, I'm like, yeah, I'm really thankful for how things have gone because then, you know, when I moved to Substack, <laughs> Substack became a sort of viable, mm-hmm. uh, profitable uh, source of income for me. And so, yeah, I, uh, I, yeah, I never would have thought that like, writing would be because because I, I was familiar like just like anyone else like writing is not you know most people don't earn that much from writing and so I know I'm, mm-hmm. I'm very fortunate to do it this way um, yeah. you're not just writing you're yeah. re- literally putting yourself out every week you know like yeah. it's yeah. very personal experience yeah. well, do you have all, a favorite yeah do you have a favorite it's not writer? all personal it's like some of it is personal essays but a lot of it is like you know psychology papers and research yeah. and topics or book reviews yeah. and other things but it's too, still like so. your thing yeah. you know what I mean like yeah. it's it's your, I don't know. It's um, yeah. it's it's kind of the dream in a way of like being able to just like these are the things that I'm interested in. <laughs> this is Yael's yeah. dream. She wants everyone this to care about what she cares about and like yeah. what she yeah. likes. We know. I've been avoiding saying both of your names because I don't know how to pronounce them. Uh, <laughs> but I know. I think I, I interrupted you. Hi, Leah. Tell me yeah, if I yeah, said no, it wrong. But you asked, what's yeah. my favorite something? Yeah, who's your favorite? Do you have favorite author or writer? It's askadu.substack.com. Like? <laughs> <laughs> favorite author. I mean, okay, so I mentioned Isaiah Berlin. Um, you know, I was introduced to him by my history professor at Yale, John Lewis Gaddis, who's like an, you know, he's an eminent historian. He's kind of an icon uh, in Cold War history. And yeah, he introduced me to Berlin's work. And so like, I've you know done my best to work my way. I mean, he's very dense material, but yeah. sort of piecemeal work my way through. And, and, and his work sort of shaped a lot of my, my worldview. Um, other, other authors, I mean, it's tough. Like, you know, there are a lot of books that I like. Um, I like George Orwell's stuff, his body of work. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, more recent stuff. I mentioned The Two-Parent Privilege from Melissa Carney. Uh, Jean Twenge's recent book on generations was really interesting. Oh, where she I've heard a few interviews with her. She's really, I mean, her work is fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, Do you ever just know, like read like a dumb stuff. book like Danielle Steele or like Colleen Hoover? 
You know, I read books? <laughs> I read a dumb book. I read Dan Brown's book, um, <laughs> Inferno. Brown. It was a sequel to um, the Da Vinci Code. <laughs> the da Vinci Code. Yeah, yeah, that was fun. Um, what other? I've read other. I'm sure I've read other dumb books. Um, <laughs> but not, not that many. That. No, not that. <laughs> not that many. Many. It's okay. That's well, okay. okay. But the thing is, like, so so. I don't read a lot of fiction. I mean, I have this, like, I'm, I, I don't read a lot of fiction. I don't read a lot of science fiction and stuff. I have friends who recommend fiction to me and I don't get, but I watch a lot of TV. Oh. Um, and I love tell. that's kind of like my, like, I'm just oh, going to sit back outlet. and chill. Okay, good. Yeah, yeah, my outlet. So like, I'm watching I, um, the new Nathan Fielder show, The Curse on Showtime is really oh, good. Is, oh, um, the new season of True Detective, I still haven't fully caught up but so far it's been good the Jodie Foster I thought it was great I okay. yeah I, I loved it except it kind of turns a little you know woke but but <laughs> okay. it's good enough that, like I yeah. feel like the DEI person at HBO like came in at some point and like crossed out a bunch of things and like rearranged yeah. stuff but yeah. that's funny but Jodie Foster is is a legend yeah. she's great the new season of Fargo that just concluded that was really mm-hmm. good um so yeah, that's like my, you know, at the end of the day, I don't want to write, I don't want to think, I just want to sort of veg. Yeah. Um, yeah, Have you watched on a, Love a on the show. Spectrum? That's our favorite show right now. Oh my it's, God, uh, it's such a good show. <laughs> okay. It's, um, it, a, it sounds uh, terrible when you describe it to people, but it's really popular. We didn't like make this up. It's on Netflix okay. and it's it's um, like, a, like a dating <laughs> reality show, but everybody's on the spectrum. <laughs> Okay. Um, and they're 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 very horny. It sounds <laughs> really bad, but it's really fun. It's really good. It's, it's sweet, it's sweet okay. too. Like it's yeah. not. It it doesn't make fun of them. No, okay. I think is it's it humanizing. like balanced? Like e- is it like equally balanced, male female, or is it like a bachelor yeah. situation? Or okay, no, no, no. Yeah, it's, equal, it's, it's not equal. like a di- it's not like a game yeah. show. It's more no. like a reality okay. show. And you get you have some very high functioning people who, and some people who are a lot less like verbal. Um, yeah. But everybody is so like, I don't know, it's like very feel good because at the end of the day, just everybody wants to find love and and settle down and they have their like, you know, weird like social issues that they work through with their with their parents or with their coaches and stuff. And it's, uh, it's yeah. kind of embarrassing that that's our favorite show. Pick something <laughs> more intellectual. <laughs> well, we also and, uh, really love... Uh, I'm, yeah, oh, I the just World watched, War II uh, yeah, show-up. Band of Brothers. <laughs> Band of Brothers. Okay. I watch it every okay. month. It's so good. <laughs> You know, yeah, I, I mean, I've that, never finished Band of Brothers, but I heard it's good. Oh my God, um, it's so What long. show, yeah. aside from the West Wing, what mm-hmm. show did you hate that everybody loved? <laughs> oh my God, do you hate the West uh, Wing? I hated the West Wig, yeah. I mean, hate is a strong word. I really didn't like it. Um, oh my god, my friend just was trying to watch it and hates it with a passion also and says oh, the good. worst show ever. That's how okay. I felt about Breaking Bad. I didn't get <laughs> oh, it. Oh, what? I like Breaking Bad. Yeah. Breaking Bad was fun. Um, yeah, I, I watched West Wing. I watched two seasons and I, that was like more than enough for me. Torture, yeah. Um, other shows that I... Oh, I like Game of Thrones I couldn't get into. Yeah, uh, and I'm like the only. It feels like I'm the only person on the planet where I tried. No, me too. I, I had twice. to go on Wikipedia after every episode to figure out what happened. <laughs> okay, okay. I also um, need a show that I can play on my phone. Like I can't. <clears throat> don't expect me to That's focus terrible. too much. That's terrible. <laughs> Two screens. Have, have you ever watched Fauda? I've not. What's this? Oh, it's really good. That's uh, it's. I think it's on Netflix. It's it um, is. it's a great uh, Israeli show about like um. 
like, um, what do you call it? Like counterterrorism. A, 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 a counterterrorism, like undercover unit. Um, and it became really pretty know. popular in the U.S. because it's very you know, like action packed. Okay, what is it called? Yeah, Fauda. F F A U D A. I must have heard about this somewhere because it sounds familiar. It sounds good. Um, yeah, if you on, like action, is it on Netflix or? Mm-hmm. I think yeah, it's, it's on Netflix. Netflix. I think. Yeah. Okay, I'll check it out. And it's it it's good, become though. very popular. And the two creators yeah. are actually um, they were in that unit in their military mm. service, so it's oh. kind of like very. Yeah, I don't know. It's one of them gritty. just was injured in Gaza, actually. That one of the actors. Wow. No, one of the actors. Yeah, one of the actors <clears throat> who was in Fauda was called up for reserve duty in this war and got injured really badly. Did you see the picture of him, Yael, that he posted yeah. this week? His face is like all burnt and yeah, um, he's still guy. hot though. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, war um. injuries. <laughs> war injuries increase hotness, not decrease. You know what Depends I mean? Depends which kind. I mean, we could get no. we could get into that, but no, I think all. <laughs> I think all war injuries. Yeah, there's unfortunately a lot of those. A lot of those now in Israel. <laughs> when, you, when were you there? When was I there? Uh, um, yeah. <coughs> I went with this. Um, it was like a, an organization affiliated with Passages, oh, um, yeah. which is like the Christian Christians, yeah. thing. Yeah, I'm not yeah. like, I don't know. I, I don't know if I call myself a Christian. I wasn't like raised religious or anything. Um, but... Yeah, well, they got the invited to you, join. The first Jew you met then was Jesus, by the way. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah, there was like a... I, I write a little about in the book. Like, for a while, my adoptive family went to church for a little bit, but I just yeah. was not really raised religious one way or the other. So I guess, like, now I'm just, like, non-religious or non-affiliated. But I got invited to this trip. Well, you're Jew- you are 0.6% Jewish. So. That's true. That's a we'll good point. We'll take you. Um, and... Yeah, it was like, this was March of 23. So oh. like, you know, this was like before October. Right before. Yeah. And, oh, wow. you know, like it was, yeah, we, I was in Tel Aviv, Jerusalem. You know, I was there for, I think like four or five days. And nice. oh, I really liked it. And it was, uh, you know, it, it, like I went, like I said, I went my whole life, like not knowing that much about Jewish culture, history, the people. And yeah, it was just... um and then, yeah, by the time I got to college, you know, everyone has an opinion about everything. Yeah. <laughs> but to actually be there physically and to see what was going on and speaking with the people there. And um, no, I, I mean, it, it really just sort of increased the respect I had and the, um, the yeah, just kind of cemented my view that it's like it's, it's necessary for this yeah. state to exist. And yeah, for it turns this, out it's a lot more complicated once you get there, <laughs> right? And yeah. it's like not. Yeah, well. <clears throat> do you still have any friends from Yale? Uh, yeah, 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 I do. I mean, I still stay in touch with them. And um, yeah, even even Jewish friends, you know, like they, you know, <laughs> yeah, I still, I, yeah, I still speak with them. And, you know, I, I was, I was able to find people, you know, it was hard the first semester, the first year that I was on campus to sort of like find mm-hmm. my footing. I was a little bit older than the other students and came from a different kind of background. But eventually, yeah, I was able to find friends and you know, it was, yeah, but it was, uh, yeah, it was hard. Um, but eventually, yeah, w- yeah, it worked out. I was friends with all the military guys because I felt oh, like really? they were the o- only other people who were like rolling their eyes. When oh, Yael right. went to Harvard, when Yael was in Harvard. Yeah, that's what I don't know if I mentioned school. that. <laughs> not, not wearing my Harvard shirt, but, uh, yeah. Well, it's <laughs> funny. T- like I had that, like it, I had like the almost reverse experience where I made friends with Jewish people because a lot of them were, like skeptical 
of the movement and the because it, I mean, like even even as far back as 2015, there was a lot of overlap between wokeness and like anti-Zionism and mm-hmm. you know like this kind of like suspicion and and vitriol towards Jewish students. And I was yeah, I mean, I was at that point not aware enough to have seen it, but in hindsight, like clearly those the ingredients were in place to have led to what we see now. So. Yeah, yeah. Sure. What surprised me the most is I think, <clears throat> you know, at a policy school, I found that a lot of people weren't interested in policy solutions mm. and more interested in kind of tagline solutions or, you know, things that fit on a poster or on a right. protest sign. Grandstanding. and Yeah. Know. It's funny because it's something that I noticed, like, as I got, more involved in the progressive Jewish world that people cared or people gave you space to like share your opinion on things. Growing up in the Orthodox world, like when we studied or or learned, no one (coughs) cared about what you thought. Like that wasn't important in the conversation. It was, here's what the Torah says. Here's what Maimonides thinks. Here's what, you know, this great rabbi thinks. Here's what this other great rabbi thinks. Now go do it, right? No one was like, Chayalea, how do you feel about what Maimonides said about Genesis, right? Like it was so irrelevant. (laughs) And then I grew up and then I start working in the progressive Jewish world. And it's like, here's what it says in the Torah. Here's what Maimonides said. Chayalea, why was Maimonides wrong? And how, how come he doesn't see you as a, you know, and I was like, what? Who cares what I think? Like, I am no one. What is difference in me? But I feel like that's what we've done now is we're so interested or we pretend to be interested in what everybody's opinion is around everything. So it's like everyone, we're training these kids to form opinions on things that they know nothing about. And that's why we have people running around college campuses, you know, shouting slogans they don't know and saying, you know, even breaking into groups and and clubs that make no sense for, you know, based on their identity Mm -hmm. and all this stuff, because we've told them that their opinion matters. My father and mother said, you, your opinion doesn't matter. You don't know anything and be quiet (laughs) and listen to all the great people that came before you and shut up. And so, I mean, somewhere maybe after you learn all that in the middle, right? Somewhere in the middle is probably the sweet spot, but certainly not on either extreme, I think. Yeah, I think that's right. That, you know, everyone has like, yeah, everyone has to be validated and everyone's yeah. opinion matters. And <laughs> yeah, it's in, in uh, this podcast. We say yeah. that not everybody should have high self-esteem. <laughs> not everybody should no. chase their dreams. Not, some, some people, people need a up. smack. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's true. I mean, Rob- that, that's right. I agree with that. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> um, what haven't we? So what? I, again, I know I've, I've heard you on a few podcasts this week. I actually saw you in New York um, on Jesse Singles' um, event. Oh, you guys um, were there. But, cool. Yeah, I was not. I, yeah, Sorry. I okay, was there. Okay, cool. Um, it was fun. We we went to the bar after, but we we didn't find you. Uh, <laughs> I was around. But what what haven't we asked you? What's the one question that you're like, oh, I wish somebody would ask me this, and nobody asks me. And it can oh. be something racist or anti-Semitic <laughs> or. You know, it could be unrelated to anything. Like, are you circumcised? Uh, no, I, I was I don't. wondering that the whole time. I was wondering that the whole time. <laughs> she needs, but she needs uh, evidence. She needs proof. Oh, <laughs> who's cut and uncut? I thought yeah. you guys ask everyone for this show. We do. Um, oh, we we, uh, we do ask our non-Jewish <laughs> listeners: uh, Would you hide us if there was a Holocaust? Yeah. Would you and hide? Do us? you have room? 
You know what? I, I would. You know, you know, I have kind of proof of this. I mean, it's not exactly analogous, but like I have a friend at Cambridge who is Jewish. He's a Jewish philosopher, and he's under fire for his opinions, kind of unrelated mm-hmm. to him being Jewish. But yeah, like I've publicly gone to bat for him. And like, this is like, Aww. I know it's not perfect, but like, I, I do think that there is a overlap between the kind of people who will take reputational risks yes. and people who will defend people who are unpopular or who are being yeah. vilified or targeted. Like those personality types, if you, yeah. you know, if you, if like, that's the same kind of person, I think, who would actually take extreme risks uh, in some kind of like uh, genocidal regime. Yes, yes. Um, and everyone else who Honestly, thinks that they would be hiding uh, innocent people, no, they would be the ones targeting them, the people who are with the mob <laughs> and who are right. a part. Of, yeah, it's just very that's interesting, right. like how we got those things backwards. But what I'm anyway, hearing, Rob, uh, the answer is, is yes, have... I'm circumcised. Oh. oh, good. Sorry. Oh, I'm happy to hear <laughs> What I'm that. hearing is that you have other Jewish friends and there will be no room for us. So, yeah, the quote is full. Sorry. Oh, my God. Uh, you know, yeah. one thing I learned We're... at Yale is that Jewish quote is very important. And, you know, <laughs> we don't Asian need quotas it, yeah. too, so be careful. Wait, That's I just true. thought of a no, question I want to ask you. This is a, a bit of an uncomfortable question, okay? More uncomfortable you... than is he circumcised? Yes, actually, <laughs> because it's about someone. Um, <clears throat> Richard Haninia. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay. I yeah, yeah, yeah. am on a mission because he says a lot of things that people really think he's super racist and whatever. What you know, I don't have to tell <laughs> okay. you. But he's been mm. incredible on the Israel stuff, and that's the first time I've kind of paid attention to him and I've been reading his stuff. And I'm like so impressed with like his thoughtfulness and you know the things that the conclusions he's coming to. So like, are people wrong? Is he not a racist? Is he like? I know you do some things with him, so I don't know. I don't. I mean, it it depends on what like what does racist mean anymore. Like, I I used to think like when I was a kid growing up, like there was a taboo on racism, and racism was like judging people based on their skin color or ancestry before knowing them, and like treating them unfairly as a result of it. And if that's the definition, I don't think Richard's like that. Like Richard has friends of every like you know whatever he's every ethnicity and every group. But now, like racism, I think like some people bend their definition. Like now, if you if you believe that there are statistical differences between ethnicities, Mm -hmm. uh, which are actually like verifiable, um, but you believe in them and point them out, people will call you racist. And so, I don't know. I like. I don't think I don't think Richard's racist uh, under you know the old definition. Under the new definition, many people would call him racist. Under um, the new definition, we're all racist, probably right. That's probably. right. Which is a weird. I mean, it's a weird thing. Like the whole language game around racism, because at least like when the implicit bias stuff was popular, you know, mm-hmm. five six years ago, the, the belief was like we're all racist. We're all in our hearts secretly racist. And so it was just a, sort of a given. Everyone's mm-hmm. racist. But then if someone said something. Uh, offensive or racist, we still we, like we attack them and vilified them. But it's like, well, I thought we were all racist. <laughs> like, yeah. Why are we like getting mad at this person for just being the thing that I thought we all were? I just um, want to be seen. Yeah, it's just yeah. like, well, you know, you you can't say we're all X, and then someone does the thing that shows that we're all X, and we get mad at them. It's just, yeah. Anyway, um, yeah, I think Rich. Yeah, Rich has been great. He's one of the most interesting and infuriating and provocative. <laughs> writers, like independent thinkers I know. And um, yeah, he's one of the substacks that I read um, devoutly and I like his, his stuff. And yeah, the, like his, his post, uh, was it Wars wars of Necessity and Wars of Choice on the yeah, Israel question yeah. was just like, and the, the, the challenges that the 
state faces was really interesting. Yeah. Um, cool. Yeah. Yeah. Really, really interesting guy. And so, you know, I'll defend. Do you Richard, think? You know? uh, do you think he's Thank circumcised you. though? Yeah. Uh, is Richard? <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> he's like he's he's a he's an intactivist. Um, oh really yes yeah yeah that's yeah i um (laughs) i I don't know if he's yeah i'll i'll I'll, next time next time we're in the yeah if you if you don't mind like sending him a message and asking him (laughs) yeah i'll ask him for a dick pic after the (laughs) thank you yeah yeah yeah. just have him send it directly to Chayale. i'll give you her number (laughs) yeah yeah we need to learn more about we need to learn yeah yeah we'll come up with a good porn name for him too <laughs> that would be easy. I feel like that would be easy. Yeah. <laughs> well, anyway, thank you so much for coming on. I yeah, really, you, really appreciate it. And I know you did a lot of media and I hope the book sells tons of copies because it's a really important story and it's the way you tell it and the it's it really holds up a mirror, I think, for a lot of us to think about our own lives and to mm-hmm. think about how grateful we should be and to rethink some of the sort of you know, foundational principles that we run our lives around that maybe we should question and rethink. And I, it's a very, very important book. And I really yeah. am so and we'll link to it, that you wrote um, it, honestly. To the Amazon link to the most expensive yeah. version. Don't go buy the Audible <laughs> or the Kindle version either. Buy the hardcover. Uh, it's called Thank Troubled you. by Rob Henderson. And what's your um, substack? Wait, tell people what your substack is. Uh, RobKHenderson.com. And same, same Twitter handle or X, Rob K. Henderson. Yeah, we say Twitter. We're we're okay. We're, so we're intactivists. Yeah, we say. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Good, good. <laughs> All thank right, you thank so you much. so much, Rob. Thank you, thank you both. Thanks. Bye.